Well, uh, as you say, not being able to see things clearly is at best embarrassing and, as the cat anticipated, potentially dangerous. Uh, While it might seem better than being blind, blurry, distorted vision is still not a good place to be. It's confusing, making it difficult to negotiate the world and life. And it's a situation that's worth improving, moving on from. Uh, That's the point of those Specsaver ads and that's the point of the unique miracle recorded in Mark 8.22 following that you heard read tonight. So let's pray and ask God for help with his word. Uh, Our gracious God who has given us the gospel of your son, our Lord Jesus, uh, we pray that you would give us through your spirit understanding of your word so that we would see Jesus clearly and so that we'd understand how we should respond to him. And Father, we pray that you would help me now speak your word truthfully and clearly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Another 20 years, I'll get it right. Good. Okay. They came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him, begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village, spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him. He asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes. The man looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him home, saying, don't even go into the village. Now, this restoration of sight to the blind is unique amongst all the mighty works Jesus is recorded as performing, unique in three ways. Firstly, here alone of all the mighty works of healing, does Jesus explicitly ask the man about what's happening? Do you see anything? Uh, Secondly, alone of all the mighty works, The man indicates he has not been healed instantaneously but is experiencing only partial improvement. I see people, they look like trees walking, which is an indication, by the way, that this was not a man born blind uh, but someone who's gone blind through many causes of later onset blindness like trauma, cataracts, trachoma, glaucoma and other causes. And thirdly, only here is there a reference to a second laying on of hands? Now, it's very unusual. It's an unusual miracle. Why? Uh, There's no indication that this man has an especially difficult kind of blindness or was somehow deficient in faith or especially sinful. No indication that Jesus was a bit tired, a bit depleted of power that day or that Jesus was distressed by having to engage in this two-stage procedure. Actually, what we see is that Jesus is in control. He's not disturbed by this sequence of events. What happens here is quite deliberate, and its recording is deliberate. In its context, this miracle where the man moves from being blind to blurred sight and then to the blessing of being able to see everything clearly is an acted parable. (coughs) It's telling us, having just heard of the blindness of the Pharisees 
and the blurred, confused understanding of the disciples that not being able to see who Jesus is clearly is a place worth moving on from. That what the disciples who don't seem yet to understand who Jesus is, verse 21, and we need to do is to be able to bring the identity and mission of Jesus into sharp focus. It's no use staying confused with a partial understanding of Jesus' greatness. And as we look at what immediately follows this miracle, Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ, we see that this acted parable is telling us that to know the blessedness of seeing things clearly and so being able to act confidently and safely in the world, act in ways that are good for us and useful for others and not waste our lives missing the point, anxious about what is not there, like I say, a pulse in a fur hat, we have to come to the place where we can answer the question Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say I am, as Peter does. You are the Christ. Answer that question with clarity and conviction. And yes, this miracle is also reminding us that Jesus is the one who can bring us to that clear-sightedness as we keep listening to him. But to see that, let's start with the blindness of the Pharisees. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Now it seems strange, doesn't it, that having just read of the second feeding of the crowds by Jesus his multiplication of seven loaves and a few small fish to satisfy the hunger of about 4,000 people that the Pharisees would demand a sign from heaven to test him. What they're actually asking for is what will be in their eyes a demanding, compelling proof that Jesus has been sent by God. And their demand tells us Uh, that for them all the other mighty works performed by Jesus and of which some are recorded in the Gospels, you know, the casting out of demons, his healing, cleansing of lepers, restoring hearing and speech, giving sight to the blind, signs of who Jesus is. For them, these are all just potentially ambiguous in character because, remember, this is the group who wanted to attribute Jesus' casting out of demons to the devil. You see, they are rejecting the signs that have been given to demand a sign of their own choosing and saying that only Jesus doing the sign or the type of sign they specify will count with them. Now, what does that tell us about them? Well, it means they have the blindness of determined unbelief that refuses to see, a blindness that flows from their hearts. Even though these people have an appearance of devotion to God in their strict religiosity, what we're learning about them is that they have to be in charge. So they think they get to say what is of God and what is not, to be the judges whom God must satisfy before any work can be his work. Like many today, they believe they can sit in judgment of what God can and cannot do. And only if he does what they say he can, can he be their God. As we saw with their adherence to their tradition, even when it led to disobedience to God, the human word, the human judgment for them has to be the last word, even if it leads to rejection of God. And it is like many today. 
You know, people have certain tests, don't they, that think uh, God must, they think God must pass before they give him a hearing. You might have met people like that. You yourself might be like that. Perhaps, like the person I met once while dawn knocking at uh, Imwaga, you demand some dramatic demonstration in your presence of God's reality before you'll engage with what Jesus says. In his case, it was a bit self-defeating because he said to me, he said, if God was real, he should just strike me dead right now. And I thought, well, that would be fairly terminal, right? <laughs> Terminate the discussion, wouldn't it? Uh, but perhaps you have other criteria of how God should act there. People, you know, you say, if I'm going to believe in a God, then no children should be allowed to die. Or if I'm going to... Believe in God, well, I've got to be able to prove his existence by science, by the scientific method. People make demands. What God must do before they recognise him? But there are at least two problems with those demands. Firstly, those pre-commitments blind us, just as they blinded the Pharisees, to all the evidence there is already for who Jesus is. And there is a lot. There was a lot then. I mean, Jesus had already done many mighty works, driven out unclean spirits, cleansed lepers, healed a paralysed man, restored in the synagogue a man with a withered hand. He's healed many. He's fed many with scant resources. And those things weren't done in secret. And there wasn't any doubt about them. The healed were really healed. And he's done those things in the context of fulfilling the scriptures the Pharisees said they knew and that point to Jesus' identity. Scriptures like Isaiah 35 that speak of what God will do and we heard last week or Isaiah 61 quote in Luke 4 that speaks of what God's servant will do. They had the scriptures pointing to who Jesus is. And Jesus has already refuted their alternative explanations, their misinformation, you know, that he's doing these things by the power of Beelzebub, by an evil power. He showed its nonsensical nature. And that rather than being Beelzebub's servant, he's actually his conqueror. And casting out demons shows he's the strong man who binds Satan and plunders his property. There was lots for them to see. That indicated who Jesus was. And there's actually even more evidence now. We've got the Gospels, their existence and authenticity as first century eyewitness documents that let us see what the disciples saw. Oh, there's the disciples enduring testimony to the resurrection, testimony which they maintained even in the face of death. Oh, yeah, there's the existence of the Christian church, its existence, growth and endurance over centuries, which accounts for its existence not by any some kind of social phenomenon, but actually by the power of the risen Jesus building his church. There are the lives of myriad Christians whether it's their testimony to the change believing in Jesus has brought or their devotion to doing good now and through the centuries, for example, establishing hospitals and schools, the emancipation of slaves, or their testimony of people like Lewis or Keller or Watkins to the gospel-making sense of the world. There's lots of evidence. And one of the great disappointments of reading Dawkins say the God delusion was his failure to grapple with all the evidence, particularly his dismissal of the Gospels and history. But of course he was just expressing his pre-commitment, his determination not to see. And so 
you look at the Pharisees, you ought to ask yourself, you know, if you don't see Jesus clearly yet, are your pre-commitments to your own reason or experience being ultimate blinding you to the evidence of Jesus? First problem. And secondly, these pre-commitments and the demands they generate make a real relationship with the living God impossible while the demand and the attitude behind it remains. Sighing deeply in his spirit, Jesus said, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now, Mark said this is a test for Jesus, one which he rightly rejects with a sigh. He rejects it because to engage with the Pharisees on their terms is to make relationship with the living God a relationship which is always, through faith in his word, impossible. Firstly, because where they dictate the terms of the relationship, the grounds on which they'll believe in him, God cannot be the God he is. See, there's no room here for the almighty, sovereign, holy God in their relating to God, the God who is free to be the God he wills, the God whose wisdom is beyond the limits of a creature's understanding, whose power is incomprehensible to finite mind. For the creature to dictate the terms of relationship, the infinite God has to shrink to the limits of their capacity have their understanding become an idol of their shaping. And secondly, faith in God, which is always faith in the word of God, called God's invisible and he makes himself known to us through his word. Faith in God, <coughs> in God making himself known to us, becomes impossible. For where the sign they demand is granted, at the bottom of faith is always faith in themselves, their capacity to know what God can and cannot do, their capacity to judge what's right and wrong for God to do and say, and that's disastrous because they cannot save themselves. It's useless putting your faith in yourself. I hope you realise that before you die because you cannot make yourself alive, but the living God can. So the Pharisees have the, the, the blindness of determined unbelief. They can't see what's there to be seen because they want to relate to God without repentance, without confessing that the living God dictates the terms of relationship, without abandoning their proud reliance on themselves, on their tradition, though for others it's reliance on their reason or their experience as the final arbiter, but they are blind. Jesus sighs. For the demand itself springs from their rebellious hearts and granting it would only entrench further their rebellion. And he sighs because they cannot see that. So there are the blind and then there are the blurred, uh, the ones who see things only vaguely and indistinctly. And that's what's revealed of the disciples in the boat. As Jesus digests the conversation he's just had, processes his grief at the Pharisees' unbelief, he says to his disciples, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they, of course, totally misunderstand it because their minds are on the bread they lack. They're having a who forgot to bring the sandwiches to the picnic moment, right? So that's where they are. They're just preoccupied, as some of us can be at times, with their stomachs. But we shouldn't misunderstand, should we? 
I mean, Jesus has just told them and us back in chapter 7 that it's not what goes into the body, but what comes out of the heart that defiles a person. It's not what we eat, but what we think and desire that makes us unclean, threatens our relationship with God, our creator. So there's no way now that Jesus is warning these disciples about getting bread or the components to make it like leaven from the Pharisees and Herod. Buying bread from them will not affect their relationship with God. That's not what he's on about. Jesus is talking about the attitude of the Pharisees and Herod that runs through their whole life, just as leaven works its way through the whole batch of dough and so can be expressed, can be tasted in all they say and do. Now, what's the leaven of the Pharisees, this thing that runs through their whole life? Well, he's speaking to the disciples because they've just witnessed the leaven of the Pharisees in action, in their demand for a sign. It's that attitude that makes the human the final judge, where they're at the centre and God at the periphery, where their trust is in themselves and not in God. That attitude is expressed in and supported by their teaching, where the human word has the last say, where they claim to know better than God what God wills and desires. And their word should prevail, displace God's word. Oh, and this attitude is what gives rise to their hypocrisy. For what God thinks of you, for them, is not as important as what people think of you. So you can pretend to people and lie to God. And you can do that because actually it's the human word, the human verdict, your verdict on yourself, which is actually most important. Now, that attitude of self-trust seems so small, and yet it affects everything. And it will make you, if that's your in your heart, it'll make you determine not to see Jesus' greatness, Jesus who says he is Lord and his word should be trusted and obeyed. Now, that leaven's still at work today. It's, in the work, it's at work, say, in the work of modern theologians and Christian office bearers who set aside the word of God in favour of their own teaching, whether it's about sexuality or money. Oh, it's at work in those who say it doesn't matter where your heart is as long as you do the right performance of outside rituals. That's the leaven of the Pharisees, and it will blind you to Jesus' greatness. What's the leaven of Herod? Well, remember Herod, we met him a few weeks ago. He's the bloke, remember, who had John the Baptist killed because he was impressed by his stepdaughter Salome's dancing. Now, think about him. He could listen to John. He was impressed by John. But in the end, he loved power and being well thought of by other powerful people. And so he killed John rather than lose face. You see, the attitude of Herod is that he has a right to do whatever it takes to keep himself in power because he is the one who can and must secure his own security and place in the world. And so questions of justice and truth, entirely secondary, can be cynically dismissed. Now, you will never want to see Jesus as he is, where a commitment to your own power, to being ultimately accountable to yourself for what you do, is at the core of your life influencing all of your decisions. You will never then want to relate to Jesus on his terms as Lord. That love of power 
Control over your own life is a pre-commitment that will blind you to Jesus. And that is as true today as it was then. Where you are committed in your heart to doing whatever you want to do, you'll be looking for ways to dismiss Jesus for he claims an authority over your life outside of yourself. So Jesus warns his Pharisees, sorry, his followers of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, because where they ingest, internalise those attitudes, they will be blinded to knowing who Jesus really is, seeing his greatness, and that will impoverish them. But the disciples, well, as you heard, to Jesus' apparent frustration, they missed the point entirely. And not on his wavelength at all. They're worried about their immediate needs, about food, a preoccupation that keeps them from getting Jesus, seeing clearly what Jesus is on about, hearing what is his teaching. (coughs) It's a preoccupation and a worry that tells us that they haven't got a clear picture of Jesus yet, that his greatness and his mission have not yet come into focus in their thinking. Because let's face it, how could they be worried about food in Jesus' presence? That's the question Jesus asks them. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not Remember, Jesus has just taught that they're not going to be defiled by what they eat. Why would eating bread, physical bread of the Pharisees or any others be an issue? And surely, he says, they have learned that there is no lack when they're in his company. Do you not remember? Think, he says to them, about what you have witnessed. And because food and not, for example, health is their preoccupation at the moment, Jesus points specifically to the two feeding miracles. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? Twelve. Pretty impressive. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven. It's not a situation of want and lack, is it? And he says to them, don't you understand yet? Sure, these feedings recall God's provision in the wilderness, but this is greater than Moses. Moses got a message about the manna coming and told the people how they were to gather and use it, but the bread and the fish multiply in Jesus' hands. This is the creative power of God who routinely multiplies the products of creation to feed the world. And it's a provision, as you heard in Mark 8 too, that springs from his compassion. And Jesus here emphasises its superabundance. How many baskets did you collect? See, Jesus has compassion on our frailty. He knows our need. And it's obvious that the Lord Jesus has power to provide superabundantly. So how can they, in his presence, be anxious about food? So preoccupied with present earthly needs that they fail to listen to and understand him. See, Jesus wants them to look closely, to think clearly about what they've experienced, to remember that is, in a sense, to look again at what he showed them of himself so that they can really engage with his greatness and what it means to be his. But we can be like the disciples, can't we? 
Our preoccupation with present pressing needs can stop us seeing Jesus' greatness and compassion, even if we've experienced it time and again. Our preoccupation can rob us of the comfort and security of being in his presence. In fact, we can become so preoccupied, whether it's with our need for a job or a companion or our health or the conflict we're experiencing at work, that we never really stop to look at the Jesus we know. Forgetting those times he's rescued us, helped us, provided for us, forgetting his love. Our preoccupation with the cares and riches of this life means we can, well, we can have Jesus here, but have him out of focus, not see clearly his greatness and kindness in our lives. And it's on the back of this conversation where Jesus has urged them to look again and and on the other side of his healing of the blind man that Jesus asks them, as you heard, the key question that will help them bring his greatness into focus. Jesus moved again, this time to the foothills of Mount Hermon, Caesarea Philippi, Gentile territory, and he says, who do people say that I am? And the disciples repeat the crowd's speculation. Some say John, Elijah the prophet, holy figures, preparatory figures, someone who kind of maybe fits into God's plan somehow, but they're not sure. Just one in a succession, one of a bunch, not one of a kind. But you, he says, who do you say that I am? And now the disciples have remembered, they have thought, They have looked again intently and Jesus comes into focus. Peter answers him, you are the Christ, that is the Messiah, the anointed one. Now you kind of sense it's climactic, don't you? But what's actually Peter confessing in saying Jesus is the Christ? Who's the Christ? Well, the Christ or Messiah just means the anointed one and various figures, but principally kings in the Old Testament were spoken of as anointed. And the Jewish people had an expectation of anointed king to come. He'd be the descendant of David, whom God had promised would sit always on David's throne. And he's talked about quite a lot in the Old Testament. So just one or two references to give you a sense of their expectation. This is God's promise to David back in 2 Samuel 7. The Lord declares... The Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I'll raise up after you your descendants who will come from your body and I'll establish your kingdom, his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll discipline him with the rod of men and blows from mortals, but my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. And this expectation that starts here is developed in the prophets, a famous passage that you might have heard, read at Christmas, speaks of a child who will come. And his dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forevermore. 
Or again, Jeremiah 23. Look, the days are coming when I'll raise up a righteous branch for David. He will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the end. There are lots of other references, some in the outline. (coughs) In confessing Jesus to be the Christ, Peter is saying Jesus is not some kind of forerunner. He is the one. He is the one who is God's king, the one who will establish an eternal reign. One death will not end. One who will rule over all. So Israel, God's people, need never fear any enemy, never be oppressed again. The one who will reign with justice and righteousness and so their lives will be ordered. They'll know prosperity and peace. He's saying Jesus is the one through whom God will fulfil all his promises to his people, bringing the new age, the age to come, the end time renewal of Israel, resurrection, the gift of the Spirit, the one who can, as Jesus did, preach the kingdom, the reign of God as near because he brings it himself. Peter is saying Jesus is this promised Christ through whom God will achieve his saving purposes in the world. Now that's a big call, isn't it? Especially as Jesus had none of the trappings of a king, did he? No army, no treasury, no palace. But in this confession, in seeing Jesus clearly as he is, Our Lord says they are blessed. That's what Jesus says in Matthew. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, that's Peter, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. He's saying that they're blessed in this confession, even if they as yet don't understand Jesus' work, how he will be king. And next week's passage and the whole struggle of the Disciples to understand and accept Jesus' teaching about having to go to the cross makes plain how little they understood. But why are the disciples blessed in confessing Jesus as the Christ, in seeing Jesus clearly? Why are we, if that's our confession? Well, firstly, it's because it's true. It's the only confession of Jesus' identity consistent with what they've seen and heard of Jesus. As recorded in the Gospel, they have seen Jesus has the authority of one who is stronger than all that enslaves us and brings disorder and misery into our lives, stronger than the terrifying and powerful forces of nature. He stills the storm, stronger than the forces of evil. He drives out demons, stronger than sickness and death. We've seen him raise Jairus' daughter, the one who can provide abundantly to all, the one who can forgive sins. They're blessed because this is a true confession and it's always better to live informed by the truth, to walk in the light and not in the darkness. And secondly, they're blessed because this confession clarifies their relationship with Jesus and it makes clear what kind of trust and obedience Jesus deserves. As the Christ, he is the one who can deliver his people, bring them to share in the life of the new age. He should be listened to and believed, followed even as he claims things no other religious teacher or even a prophet can or should claim, like giving eternal life or a place in God's kingdom to those who trust him because they are his gift. Oh, thirdly, They're blessed because this confession gives the disciples a foundation upon which their understanding of Jesus' work can grow. 
As I've said, they don't get it all straight away. They found what Jesus goes on to teach about his coming and about his coming death in Jerusalem really hard. So, in a sense, the healing of this blind man is a parable not just that looks back to growing clarity and understanding of who Jesus is, coming in the middle of the gospel, it also looks forward. Looks forward to what will happen in the second half of the gospel. Their movement to understand what kind of Christ he will be, the work he's done, to understand how just how great he is. And understanding Jesus himself will give them in his teaching and in his appearing to them after his resurrection. But in confessing Jesus as the Christ, they, the disciples, now have a framework, the framework of the Old Testament and its promises by which to engage with all Jesus does and by which to listen to all his teaching, a framework that will help them in the end understand the cross that they find unthinkable now. You see, they'll be able to understand the cross as the will of God, the victorious work of God's Christ to bring peace to God's people, the peace that can only come when sins atoned for, death defeated, the evil one's reign of lies broken. They'll understand the cross as the work of Christ that does that, and not just for the Jewish people, the chosen people, but for all peoples. Confessing Jesus now as the Christ, seeing him clearly, is a God-given blessing for the disciples. And when Jesus comes clearly into focus for us as the Christ, we also are blessed for the same reasons. Firstly, because it's true. As Peter proclaims at Pentecost, the resurrection shows beyond doubt that the Lord Jesus is God's Christ, the promised descendant of David, the one who has an eternal kingdom which death will never end, to whom all authority in heaven and on earth is given. And it is always a blessing to know this truth, to know, as Peter proclaims to Cornelius, that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead, to know that the Lord Jesus is the judge whom each one of us must meet, the one who will give the final verdict on our lives. That really is good to know, doesn't it? Because it gives you, it gives your life a different shape. Your life will have a different trajectory, won't it, if you think you will face a living, just judge and not just die and rot. When you confess Jesus as Christ, you know that that is what we'll face at the end. But more than that, if you confess Jesus as a Christ, as you think of that judgment, well, you realise that as he promises, Jesus is the judge who has the authority to forgive your sins if you repent and believe, and you can meet that judge as your friend and not the one who will condemn you that day. It's a blessing to have your eyes open to see Jesus is the Christ, for it is true. And to walk in truth is always better than to pursue lies. And to see Jesus clearly in confessing in Christ clarifies now our relationship with him, because it's saying that he is the one whose word rules, and the one who can Supply superabundantly for us all that he's promised, grace and life. So we should do what he teaches. 
and should trust that what he promises will be delivered. Now, some things he calls us to do may be difficult, whether that's telling the truth, being faithful in marriage, loving our enemies, forgiving those who wrong us, being sexually self-controlled so that we live chaste lives. But knowing he's the Christ, life is simplified. We actually just know he should be trusted and obeyed. That's the way of life. And seeing who Jesus is, is a blessing because, yes, like the disciples, it gives us a foundation on which to build a growing understanding of the greatness of Jesus and his work, which a fuzzy, indistinct, blurred picture of Jesus does not do. You see, like the disciples, none of us get it all at once, do we? There's so much to puzzle over in the death of Jesus. It's so unlike everything else in the world. The death that saves us and the death that gives us the shape of the Christian life now. Much to puzzle over. But knowing it is the death of the Christ opens the door for us to be taught from God's word about its meaning. A door to learning more of the God whose will it is, to growing knowledge of God, to learning more of ourselves and our need, to actually understand ourselves and the effect of our sin. A door to knowing more of the depth of our Lord Jesus' love and grace for us that can sustain us throughout our life. A door to knowing more of the completeness of his victory, the victory that will raise us at the last day. Thinking Jesus is just another prophet or teacher or life advisor or a failed social revolutionary, that will deny us that growth in understanding, which, let me say, is something you can pursue all your life to your eternal blessing. It's a great blessing to see Jesus clearly, to confess him as the Christ and to think and grow in understanding of his work knowing he's the Christ. The blind and the blurry are always at a disadvantage in the world of light. It is good to see things clearly. So if you're not yet getting Jesus, look again. If you're dismissing Jesus, ask yourself, what pre-commitments are making it hard for me to engage with the evidence? Is my trust in myself And my own judgment, is that really justified? And let me say, life usually teaches you it's not. Can you really make your own tradition, your own reason, your own experience the judge of what the living almighty God can do? Recognise what's holding you back and look again. Not at what you demand to see, but what is there already to see. And if you need help with that second look, if you want to look at the gospel evidence with someone who sees things differently from you, come and talk. Oh, and and if you're somebody who feels positively towards Jesus, you know that you think there's something there, but you, you never seem to have been able to really commit, never quite got what is so good about Jesus that's worth your whole life. Well, ask, what preoccupation? mean that I'm failing to engage with Jesus? Is it my work, my study, my sport, my anxiety about those Preoccupations that mean that you're probably never really listening to what Jesus is saying, only listening 
or the things that concern you instead. And so he actually, when you listen like that, you never really get his greatness, the greatness of his love or his power or the greatness of the gift of the life he came to give you because you're not listening for them. So if that's you, listen again as Jesus talks, not of how you can make your life a success or solve this or that pressing problem, but of the eternal things, sin and judgment of forgiveness and life, of love and truth and eternal life. Listen to him and see his greatness for yourself. And if you're someone who by God's grace does see Jesus clearly, confesses, yes, he is the Christ, well, give thanks because you are blessed. You actually know the truth, not just about Jesus, but about the universe and its end and about yourself and why he came. You are blessed. And having been given sight, keep looking to him for the way of life, for the compassionate provision of all you need and for the fulfilment of all he has promised you. Keep looking to him. And also this, recognise a clear picture of Jesus is not there to be kept to yourself. The Christ, if you confess him, you're confessing he is the ruler of all, he is the judge of all, he is the one who can forgive and give life to all who come to him and all need that forgiveness and life. In confessing Jesus is the Christ, you're also confessing that he is to be shared with all. So give yourself to that as you look to him. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you uh, for that strange miracle. We thank you that the Lord Jesus is the one who can bring us from blindness to full and clear sight. Help none of us to stop halfway, to be content with seeing Jesus indistinctly while we're just preoccupied with our own present needs. Help us to listen to him so that we see his greatness and are confident in him that he can provide for us not just now, but provide what we really need forgiveness of our sins, peace with you, sparing at the judgment and resurrection life. Our gracious God, help us to see Jesus clearly. Your Son, the Christ, the eternal ruler with all authority and help us to trust and follow him as he deserves. In Jesus' name, amen.